0: everyone here and everyone joining us online. Great to see you. I'm so excited because we are jumping into one of the most uh, coolest parts of Israel's history. We're going to jump into the Old Testament today, and we're going to journey through uh, the bo- the books of Nehemiah, Esther, and Ezra, and uh, we're not going to do all that today, but today is going to be sort of an introduction into the book of Nehemiah. So to do that, I thought we would go to all of our favorite books, which is 2 Chronicles, and that is chapter 36, verse 11 through 21. Now, I believe this really introduces our subject very well, gives everybody a good uh, glimpse, or I I should say grasp. And I did mark this in my Bibles, and here it is. So let's read. And I believe we also have it up here. Thanks to Randy. Uh, Thank you for putting that up. So let's read 2 Chronicles, verses 36, 11 to 21. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hands. Verse 18, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and his sons into the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Je- Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed all its sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept sabbath until 70 years were complete. So that is laying the foundation. The book of Chronicles is uh, an, an overview of the history of Israel. It was, it's known to be written by Ezra, the scribe, around the same time that he wrote the book of Ezra. We don't have total evidence for that, but that's what scholars have said. This is written by Ezra. The books of Chronicles were written so that way when Israel came out of exile, because they were there for 70 years, all their young people who weren't around at the time and everything was destroyed could have an idea of the history of Israel and the tribes and everything like that. So when you read through the book of 1 Chronicles and Second Chronicles, A lot of the content is familiar because it's from Samuel, it's from the the books of Kings, and so forth. But I picked this very passage because King Zedekiah was the very last king of Israel before they went into exile. And this sort of lays the foundation. Now, when we take a look at our world, there's a really cool comparison or parallel. We take a look at the, our world right now, we see atrocities happening <clears throat> that some even we can't even mention against innocent people. We see sufferings, we see those starving for food. We see the abuse of power, corruption by our leaders. We see individual sins, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I can go on and on. When we see all this happening in our world, <clears throat> oftentimes we can get very discouraged. And unfortunately, it's, it's impossible to get away from it. We receive these inputs constantly from our eyes, our ears, and our personal experiences every single day. Now, when we come to God, <clears throat> putting God first and believing he is the, he is the redeemer of mankind, that he's redeeming this world through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son, that is laughable to the average person in our culture. Our world seems to reject God, the gospel, and the real Jesus by default. Man has instead chosen to put himself in the position of God. He refuses to allow God to rule over him. He wants to rule over himself, he wants to call the shots, he doesn't want to follow God's word, and there may even be some who on the outside have that appearance of doing all the right things, they have appearances of, like the Jewish people, following the law, but really inside, as Jesus said, they're whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but rotting away on the inside. When we think about the time of the Babylonian exile, which is what the the book of Nehemiah sort of ties into, that's what 2 Chronicles is all about, the one I just wrote, the the chapter that I just read, chapter 36, verses 11 to 21. It's about Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel, the king of Judah, going into exile. Now, when they were in exile... And before they were in exile, Israel behaved in a very similar way, as I just explained. They rejected God, they were on the outside, the people of God, but their heart was far from God. They didn't do what God told them to do in the law, they actually would even go into the temple and then at the same time go worship Baal and and some of the uh, abominable idols that were in the land. They rejected God and through their constant disobedience pushed God to his ultimate limit as it it relates to God's patience. They would refuse to listen to people that God sent to them, which we call the prophets. God would have grace and he'd say, these people aren't listening. I'm going to send someone to them to tell them that they're not listening. And guess what they did? Get that guy and throw him into jail. Beat him. Kill him. So what did God do? God sent Israel's enemies to take down Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They broke down the outside walls that fortified the city. They killed millions. And they deported the remaining people into slavery. the Jewish people went into exile. See, the Babylonians, when they would capture some, a, a, a nation, they wouldn't just take them back to their own land. They would take them and scatter them out throughout all the lands that they owned, all the provinces. They wouldn't put them just in one spot. So that way they couldn't regroup. That's what the Babylonians did to the southern kingdom, and that's what the Assyrians did years, 100 or so years before that to the northern kingdom. So Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel, where we are right now, was no more. Now, after going through the gospel of John, we know that God did not give up on his people, did he? We see in Christ, Christ alone, Israel's ultimate deliverance and God's faithfulness to his promises By sending his only begotten son to come and fulfill everything that he said he would do in the Old Testament. And that Jesus said he would do as well. He did this to restore his relationship with his people for them and for the world. Because Israel was to be the light of the world. And that could only come through the line of the Messiah. And again, even during their exile, we're going to read about this. Again, today is an overview, so don't worry about if you're getting uh, capturing every single thing. We're going to go through a lot of stuff as we go through this book. But today, I just want to whet your appetite and give you a big picture. So during their exile, <clears throat> God also sent them prophets to make sure they knew why they were in exile. During the book of Nehemiah, we see the prophet <clears throat> Malachi <clears throat> During the book of Ezra, we see the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. In between the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, we have the book of Esther, which actually doesn't even mention the name God. But when we put these all together, we see God's sovereign hand working through all of the books, let alone as, uh, Esther. He wanted to send, when, he, when the people went into exile, He wanted to send them prophets to know what they did wrong, but why else did he send them? He wanted them to know that they should have hope, that God will not fail them, he will not leave them, nor will he forsake them. He will send a redeemer from the line of David through the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. But first, he had to take them out of exile. And he had to bring them back into their land, like he said, so they could become a nation once again, and he would would deliver them. What would he do in this deliverance? Well, he would bring them back, but he would also, see with Israel, there's, there's basically three primary things that they were worried about. One, their land. Two, their temple. And three, their law. And God promised, when you come back, I am going to do that. You are going to rebuild the temple. You are going to refortify the city. And you will be able to worship me again, God said, according to the Torah. Everything in the law of Moses. And so the historical books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah in the Old Testament tell of these events. They tell of the events of the return of the first captives. And there was a couple different times they returned. They tell about the rebuilding of the temple. We see that in the book of Ezra. They also tell about the rebuilding and the refortifying of the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls and reestablishing the law of God. And that is in both Ezra and in Nehemiah. They were around at the same time. Now, why am I going through? Ezra was around, came to Jerusalem about 15 years before Nehemiah did, but they were there together, as we'll read in the book of Nehemiah towards the end. So why are we taking this dive into Nehemiah? Well, I believe that this is, first of all, the easiest for us to go into out of the three in the beginning. It gives us a very close look, a perspective, a point of view from Nehemiah himself, we will learn a clear blueprint for each of us on how we are to build for God's kingdom. We're also going to learn some valuable insights into the man, Nehemiah himself. As we're going to see, he's going to give us vivid examples on how we can better follow and obey the Lord as we build our walls and as we go out and do our calling for the Lord and most important, to do all this through times of distress. How do we obey God during times of distress? How do we obey God during times of trial? And how do we obey God in times of severe opposition? Now, as a side note, I apologize for not giving you more advanced notice about this uh, shift from the Gospel of John back to the Old Testament. We didn't know really where to go. We, we had a bunch of different ideas. So, myself and the other elders, we, we prayed and we sought the Lord. And this is, we believed unanimously that this is where God would want us to be. So, we helped, felt the Holy Spirit leading us to this, which is so exciting because now we know and we trust that the Lord is going to work in our hearts, minds, and, and hopefully our hands and feet during and after this series. So, what I'd really like to do today is we're not going to jump into the actual book today. I want to continue to give you uh, an overview, but also I want you to be able to leave here today not just with a lecture about an introduction to the book of Nehemiah. I want you to be able to really grasp the themes of this book so you can can begin thinking about these and you can begin meditating on that as we get ready next week to start with chapter 1. So let's take a look at this big picture. Let's we're eventually get to, the, uh, to some more Nehemiah stuff. But I first want to ask you a question. When's the last time that you've read the Old Testament? I'm not talking about the Psalms or Proverbs. I'm talking about the five books of Moses. <clears throat> the books of Samuel. books of Kings. These historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, the prophets, the major ones, the minor ones. See, a lot of times we get into a habit of prioritizing the New Testament only, and it's good. We we should be reading our New Testament. As a matter of fact, during your read through each year, you could probably get through the New Testament a few times and get through the Old Testament maybe only once. That's fine to do that but I think a lot of times we sort of look at the Old Testament and we sort of don't know where we're at. Like we, you know, like, you know, you're, you're in the presence of God, you know, you're, you know, God wrote this, you believe the Bible is the word of God, but really what does it mean? How does this apply to me? And first of all, we have to understand that in order to understand the Old Testament, especially these books that come at the very end of Israel's history. Okay. So let me just give you the timeline. So you have Ezra, which is around 549 B.C. Well, let me just give you a... I I haven't learned it that well myself. So we have the book of Ezra 1 through 6 is around 539 B.C. Basically, Ezra is continuing the book of Chronicles. See, if you look at the last second Chronicles, the very last chapter and the very last paragraph, that's the first paragraph of the book of Ezra. So a lot of people think Ezra wrote Chronicles because it sort of overlaps like that. But the first six chapters of the book of Ezra are confusing because you're like, is this Ezra here or where was he? He's talking about Cyrus. He's talking about Persia. Ezra wasn't even born then. He wasn't. He was writing about what had happened previously. So you have the first six chapters of Ezra. And then in the middle, you have right after that, you have the book of Ezra. I'm sorry, Esther. I'm confusing you. You have the book of Esther, and then right after the book of Esther in the timeline, we go to the present time with Ezra, and that's from chapter 7 through 10. And then right after that, we have the book of Nehemiah, which is around 45 BC. And so after that, we don't know about, we don't get any writings on Israel's history in the canon of Scripture. We see it in the Apocrypha, but we don't see it, which is not inspired, by the way, but that's where we stop with the history of Israel. And then we have this intertestamental, uh, inter period, this period of where God has been silent, waiting for the Messiah. So that's where we're at right now. We're at the very end of their Old Testament history, and now we're going to have a long gap, and the climax is what we've already went through, which is what? The Gospel of John. The fulfillment of all the promises that God had made I should say, the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that God had made. Because he had made these promises to bring them back into the land. He had made these promises to rebuild the temple. He had made these promises to, to, to put the law back into place. And all of that is ultimately a foreshadow of their ultimate fulfillment in Christ and the church. So the importance of understanding the big picture is... It's hard to even exaggerate. It's very, very important to get into the Old Testament, but to understand the big picture of what we're looking at here so we can tie it more into the New Testament. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. So the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. Now, because we know the New Testament, we could look at the Old, and it's not so much concealed anymore. But to the people that were getting it at the time, they were in exile. They were worried about what was going on with them. They weren't really looking as as ahead. They knew there was going to be a king. They knew there was going to be a Messiah. They knew there was going to be a deliverer. But they could never see what we have the privilege of seeing here now. So it's so important to do this. So it's also important to know that Israel just didn't get in trouble at the very end, they were an obstinate people. Throughout the time, from the time they were delivered from Egypt, all the way through their history, they were always getting into trouble. They were always rejecting God. After King David, all the, the kingdom divided, and mostly all the kings were evil, besides a handful of them. They just refused to obey the Lord, all out for themselves, all trying to get their will done, all trying to do things the way they wanted to do. And God being faithful as he is to preserve the line of Christ, the line of the Messiah, he would continually punish them and continually restore them. He would continually warn them and they would fail and he would continually pick them back up and get them back up on on track. The first time before Moses left, the first time we hear about this is in Deuteronomy 28, 58 to 64. He said, if you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants. And he goes on and on and on and on about their sins. Now, this is where I think we can really relate to Israel because what were their major sins? Well, the first thing, what was their sin? We, we read this in the book of Jeremiah. I'm sorry, yeah, and, well, I, actually it was in our passage today, but he referred to the book of Jeremiah He put them in exile. This is what it says in our passage today. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its sabbaths. So all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So Israel became a nation in the year 1095 BC. They had been a kingdom 490 years when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem, 490 years. Now, during this 490 years of the kingdom, they had not kept the law of the Lord in giving the land a rest every seventh year. So now God is gonna fulfill his promise and he's gonna remove them from the land for 70 years so that the land could have its Sabbath. 490 divided by seven is 70. So the land has 70 years of rest. <clears throat> the old Greek proverb declares that the dice of the gods are loaded. By this they were saying you cannot go against the gods. You cannot go against God and win. If you rebel against the Lord, you can be sure that you will lose. The land needed its rest. They, just, they refused to do it. So God, what did he do? He allowed the enemies to come in. He took the enemies out. He took the, uh, the Jewish people out, put the enemies in, and that land got 70 years of rest. Now, it's interesting because it was 490 years after they became a nation. And remember, when, when, when Daniel was in exile, we know that the angel told him it would be 70 times 7 until the full exile was over, which we trace right to the time of Christ. So the 77, 490 again pops itself up. But what we need to really get out of this is disobedience always leads into exile. Disobedience to, to the Lord always leads into exile. Now, yes, the Old Testament is a different time. It's a different culture, but it's not a different God. It's the same God. It's Jesus Christ. And when we go against him in our life, when we know we're, when God is speaking to us from his word, from other people, through our spirit. We know we are sinning. We know we are doing wrong. God is sending people to you. He's sending the prophets to tell you to stop. And you say, well, I'm just sort of going to do it my way. Hey, I'm going to church. I am going into the temple. I'm paying my tithes. I'm offering my sacrifices. God says, no, I want your heart to be right. I don't care about those things as much as I care, first and foremost, about your heart. Now, these books also foreshadow Israel's ultimate uh, deliverance through Christ, as I spoke about. So as we go through this, we're going to continually be referring to what we already know from going through the Gospel of John. And a lot of times through the Gospel of John, we found ourselves back in the law. We found ourselves back in the Old Testament. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So no matter where we are in the Bible, we're always going to find a way. We always have a way. We always have that road that leads to Jesus. So what will God show us in Nehemiah? In Nehemiah, the person and in Nehemiah, the book. What can we expect to get out of this? Well, first of all, Nehemiah, the person in the book, is a picture of kingdom building through Jesus Christ. As you're going to see, Nehemiah was a regular guy. He was, he was, a, a, he was, he was pretty well up in terms of he, he was the cupbearer of the king. He was a leader. He was a man who loved the Lord. And God called him to do a very specific work. He said, Nehemiah, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. The temple had already been built. A shadow of it, what it once was. But he goes, Nehemiah, I want you to go and build those walls. And that's what the book is about. Because after the walls were built, then the law was reinstituted. Then the people of God got, back, got themselves back together. So this is a very big picture of what you and I have to do as we build for the kingdom of God? First of all, it requires a desire. As you're going to see, Nehemiah, the man had a great desire. He was burdened by the fact that his people were living uh, like they were living in Jerusalem and the city was wide open. He was very concerned about this. He had a desire. Then what did he do? He made a plan based on God's call. He prayed. Nehemiah is all about, when you're going to see one of the common themes in this whole book, is prayer. So we're going to talk a lot about praying, so that we can become a man like Nehemiah in his prayer life. So we can become a person that does what the book of Nehemiah is all about, and that is to build and rebuild those walls. Walls for our own self, and ultimately walls for the kingdom of God. Now, Nehemiah, the person in the book, is also a picture of kingdom building through complete reliance on the Lord. Maybe you're thinking you're called to do something for God. And you go and you look at the landscape. Maybe God's calling you to another place, another country, a dangerous country. Or maybe God is calling you into the lives of a tumultuous person to minister to. Maybe you want to follow the Lord, but your spouse doesn't. Maybe you're the only one in your job that represents Christ. And all day long, you're dealing with people that just want to be of the world. When they hear about you being a Christian, they sort of chuckle and laugh. You tell them that you're starting to go to church, you're reading the Bible, and they have, you believe that stuff? What about all the uh, wars that Christianity starts? You know, when you get those objections and you, you say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to keep it to myself. <clears throat> you see, you're called like Nehemiah with a very specific calling. Go build those walls. But you see, Nehemiah, as we're going to see, he just didn't go out and just say, get, you know, go hire a crew. As you're going to see, Nehemiah had great opposition when he had to go and rebuild these walls. As a matter of fact, they say, he and his crew had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. He had the priests guarding each gate of the temple so people can build the walls. Against huge, huge odds and against tremendous, tremendous pessimism was he sent out to do this. So I hope when you read this, you get encouraged individually, you, your calling, whatever it may be, you can know that God is going to be with you. If he calls you to do something where he guides, he will provide, regardless of what it is. And so I hope that this gives you this keen, this, this, this sense of God's presence in your specific calling, but that you will step out regardless of the odds and opposition. Thirdly, Nehemiah the person is a picture of the catalyst that accomplishes God's will. Nehemiah is a picture of the catalyst that accomplishes God's will. What's the catalyst? Well, a lot of things. Maybe you could say you're the catalyst, and you are. But really, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So what accomplishes God's will is Spirit-led obedience, the Spirit leading you to obey, Empowering you to do that which you don't think you could do in the midst of trials and opposition. And I think the most, my favorite picture that this book gives us is the picture of temple building, city building, pointing to the ultimate reinstitution of the temple. And what is that? The ultimate rebuilding of the temple, the ultimate new temple is Jesus Christ. But not just Jesus Christ alone, is it? The Lord tells us that we are his body. We, the church, are his temple. And you see, as the temple, as God was passionate about returning his people to rebuild the temple, to fulfill his promises, to set everything up for the return of the Messiah or for the coming of the king, he's doing the same with us as the church the temple of God, to go out into the world to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he'll bring in the ultimate temple, where we're living, this earth is going to be combined with heaven. And it's going, as you read in the book of Revelation 21 22, you see all sorts of temple language referring back to this time, referring back to the time of Zechariah when he was prophesying about the temple Being fully, fully rebuilt in all of its glory. This is all fulfilled in Christ, but it's also fulfilled in you. This brings me great joy. It brings me great hope to look at this and see this picture that I know that I am being used. I'm not just here. We were talking about this in Sunday school. We're not just here because we became Christian and now we're part of God's plan. You have been chosen before time began. Your DNA was created by God before time began so you could be placed in this period of time, not just to become a Christian, but you were placed here with a purpose, exactly where you're at right now. I say this all the time, but maybe not. Maybe, yes, where you're at now, you need to be used, you need to be open, you need to preach, but also you have, God has a calling on your life. What, will that, what is that What will that ultimately look like? Is it just being a parent? Is it being more than that? I don't know. Is it ministry? I don't know. I think everybody should look at their life as a ministry. But the calling that God gives you, I pray that this this book will give you that clear picture that you are this new temple, this new temple in Christ in action. You are no long, The people are no longer coming to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, nor will they ever. Why? Because the temple is going out into the world to become the world, the ultimate dwelling place of God, where there will be no sun, there will be no star. There's not going to be needed to have any of that stuff because the Lord will be the light, and the image of God will be placed in that temple, and that's you and me. Amen. Now, Nehemiah, the person in the book, is also a picture of each of us and our responsibility to not just follow our calling, not just do what God has called us to do, but to be passionate about it. We should have passion when we go out for the Lord. We should be excited to be obedient to what he's called us to do. Because when he calls you to do something, it's like, who cares? It's God calling me. We know that sometimes, as we read today in Acts chapter 20, Paul was told his vision. Guess what, Paul? The Spirit told him, trials and tribulations await you. And Paul said, but none of these things move me, neither do I count my life dear unto myself. I'm going to finish my course, the ministry what the Lord gave me. I'm going to finish it with joy, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Passion. You, are, you have within you a message that can transform someone's life. You have within you a message that can determine someone's eternal destination. You have a message in you that could take someone where they're at right now, in their life right now, and transform their heart and give them great joy, regardless of who they are, where they are, what they look like, what their capabilities are. It doesn't matter. Christ is. Well, we'll meet everyone exactly where they are and use them. For everyone is given a measure of faith. And that's what's laid into your hands. And Nehemiah was, was a passionate guy. As we read, you're going to respect this man for his passion, not only for the Lord and for prayer, but his passion for his country, his passion for his people, his passion for the things of God, his passion to see restoration. And that's what we have to have. We have to stop thinking so much about salvation and think about salvation unto restoration. Because getting saved, having Christ in your heart and believing on Jesus Christ is just the beginning that God, what he has for you. If you're just believing and sitting back and waiting for the Lord to return, you're missing out on a tremendous opportunity, but you're also missing out on, I believe, on your calling. God has something for you to do more than just that. And you need to ask him. And then be passionate for it. Go and do it. Go stand before the king and ask him if you could be dismissed to go rebuild the uh, walls of his enemies. That's what Nehemiah does in the very first chapter. And the Persians, the Persian kings were different. See, they were a lot more lenient. You see how the Babylonian and the Assyrian kings, they would take people into exile and then they would scatter them around. But Persia was different. By this time, they had conquered the whole known world. What they did was when they had taken a captive captive nation, they would take them into exile, but then send them back to go and rebuild their nation, of course, under the, uh, the, the authority of the Persians. So Nehemiah was placed at a very, very unique time for a very, very unique thing. And so we want to be passionate. We want to be obedient. We want to see the picture of the kingdom being built through. We want to see Nehemiah's desire, his plan, his calling, his prayer. We want to put all this together and see this picture of of everything that he is doing pointing to Christ in the church that we've we've already dug into in the Gospel of John. So I'm so excited to see that foundation laid now after we spent a year and a half in the Gospel of John. And now just going back in history a little bit more to see what the people of Israel were thinking, to see what was going on in Israel, to see God, how he's going to fulfill his promises. And at the same time, we get the, we get, we get the goodies. We get to look back and know that all of this is pointing to Jesus. <clears throat> but you know, during Nehemiah's time, he was doing all this. You would think the people of Israel would be happy. Most of them, Honestly, we're not. Read the book of Malachi. Or again, for us Italians, Malachi. Go to Malachi and read it. He was preaching to the people, not necessarily the ones that were building and doing the work, but the ones that were sort of sitting around looking and going, yeah, we're building the temple. Does this mean we got to do sacrifices and stuff? I don't know if I want to do that. I mean, does this mean we got to read the book of the law? I mean, I never heard of anything like this. Well, my father used to tell me about it, but I never seen him. I mean, I got to do this. Their hearts were still hard. Gap generation gaps happened. But guess what? They still didn't want to. Some of them didn't even want to come back. They still didn't learn. They had the wrong heart. They committed idol, uh, uh, idolatry again while this was happening. And they refused to repent. malachi 1 7 to 8 <clears throat> you are presenting defiled food upon my altar but you say how have we defiled you lord in that you say the table of the lord is to be despised you present the blind for sacrifice you present the lame and sick why not offer it to your governor who is nehemiah Would he be pleased if you do that? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal instead. For I am a great king, says the Lord. My name is to be feared. Do it 100%. There's no neutrality here. Don't be giving me your halfway. That's what we do. We see these opportunities, We see God working, and we sort of just want to sit on the sidelines. God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us, according to our own abilities, to build for his kingdom, to realize that we're his child, to realize we're here for a purpose. And I believe that uh, Nehemiah is going to show us how to do that. And again, why does he care so much about these books? Because you see, the big picture here is the preserving of the seed. Through the line of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, it had to be preserved because God would ultimately bring deliverance through Christ. So with that said, I'm going to leave you with a couple of uh, action steps as we close. Hopefully you got a good picture of this kingdom building aspect, this wall building aspect, this obedience that Nehemiah is going to tell us about the prayer life that Nehemiah is going to show us about, the passion for God's calling that Nehemiah is going to show us about. Hopefully you got all that and you can trans- transmute that into your mind and start, start thinking on it. Get prepared because that's just the foundation. And now what I would like you to do is, if you can, I mean, obviously this isn't a, a legalistic thing. I'm not going to quiz you on it or anything like that. But if you want to be super spiritual this week, read the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. Okay, that's probably take you a couple of hours to read through all all the books. If you don't want to do that, just read through Nehemiah and get an understanding of it. Put yourself in his shoes. Look at it and try to compare it as an analogy. Look at it as an illustration for the kingdom building that we are doing. I also suggest that you read the book of Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai over the nexus. Listen, Nehemiah is going to take us a while to get through. I'm not saying all this week. But as we're going through it, you you want to be super blessed and you want to be super understanding what's going on, you read those prophets. And I pray that the Lord will press upon you the importance of active spirit-led obedience to our calling, to avoid repeating the sins of Israel. So with that said, let's pray. Father, we do ask.